Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we welcome Rob Candelino, the CEO of Radio Systems Corporation, to the show. Radio Systems is the world's largest dog and cat product supplier with brands like PetSafe, Invisible Fence, Kurgo, Sport Dog, and Premier Pet. A member of the Advertising Hall of Fame, Rob is renowned for his focus on purpose-driven branding and deep understandings of consumer insights in product development and marketing. In today's conversation, Rob shares his valuable insights on leadership, emphasizing the importance of investing in people for long-term success. We'll also dive into the challenges and rewards of leading organizational teams overseas and the significance of purpose-driven branding. Without further ado, here is Rob Candelino. Hello and welcome back to the Frictionless Marketing Podcast. This is Paul Dyer with Lippy Taylor. Lippy Taylor is an earned first communications and creative agency that's been named the most outstanding mid-size agency by PR Week and many other organizations over the last several years. We specialize in helping brands revitalize their relevance with our frictionless approach to earning brand growth. So with that, Rob, thank you for joining us here today. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. Really cool to be here. So, Rob, uh, you are the, the CEO at Radio Systems today. We're going to ask some questions there about your current job, as well as some of the really um, exciting roles you've held before this. But do you want to start by just telling everybody what Radio Systems is? Yeah, uh, delighted to do that. Uh, an organization I'm very proud to have spent now 11 months at. Uh, Radio Systems Corporation is based in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is the world leader in pet hard goods. Uh, so we make things like um, Invisible Fence brand and the Pet Safe brand, which, um, surprise, surprise to many people, many of your listeners probably, we sell one Pet Safe product every second in America. Wow. So it a fantastically successful uh, brand and business. Um, and we also have great brands like Kurgo and Sport Dog and Drinkwell and Premier Pet, uh, basically to cover predominantly dog needs, um, but also uh, a fantastic business that we have with our Scoop Free brand, uh, helping cats with litter boxes and litter trays. It sounds like a pretty fun place to be. And um, John Compton, your chair of the board of directors of Radio Systems, mentioned that you personally bring a fun, I'm quoting here, a fun and highly engaged energy while driving high performance teams. So, I mean, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you do both of those things, um, you know, the balance between getting those, those hard hitting results, but having fun and, you know, in the process. Oh, uh, that's that's very nice of John to say. Um, and if, if you know John, he's not necessarily prone to give uh, praise like that. So that means a lot. That's very kind of you to do that, that background work uh, and to share that. Yeah, look, I think I got a piece of feedback from, a, you know, a colleague and a peer from an, from an agency partner. Uh, I guess it must have been a dozen or so years ago. And it changed my philosophy on leadership. She was presenting something to me and, and we had an incredibly close relationship. We had done some fantastic work together. And so I knew that she and her team were ridiculously capable and talented. And I remember I was in her office in Manhattan and, you know, she was walking me through a proposal and I just 
said, you know, this is not good enough. I'm really surprised you're bringing this to me. Uh, I know you can do better than this. Uh, you know, this is not the quality I would have expected. You know, I don't know why I'm wasting my time here today. And I was, I think, rather firm on the feedback. And I, I remember this because it was so transformational for me. You know, she threw her pen down in frustration. And I, and I thought to myself, oh, God, did I, did, did I cross a line? Was I inappropriate? Was I too harsh? And I guess the background here is this colleague, her name is Cindy. She, she was a two-sport collegiate athlete, right? Basketball and soccer. So she's a legit talent, right? Sports-wise. Mm -hmm. And she knows sports and she knows coaches. And she threw her pen down and she says, you know what, Candelino? And we had that frank and open and a discussion, uh, a, a relationship. She said, you know what, Candelino? She goes, you're like the best coach I've ever had. And I, I was like, okay, tell me more. And she said, well, you know when I'm not performing at my best and you know when to push me. And you also know when I'm working really hard you know that sometimes I just need a hug or I need, you know, I need you to put your arm around me and say things are going to be okay. And she says, you just have this sense about you that you know how to push and pull at the right moments. And I had never thought of it in those terms. I'd never thought, you know, um, to be a coach per se. And that, but that feedback has changed my perspective on leadership ever since, you know, and I very much modeled and leaned into what I think I bring to a table or to an organization that is a high degree of energy, a high degree of positivity, a high degree of vision, but equally an intolerance for average or mediocrity, because I don't believe that we are all sitting here working our tails off to do average work. Nobody comes to work. I don't care what company, what organization, what industry, nobody wants to come to work and be average. Nobody wants to mail it in. So the reason why some people may do that or why some organizations may underperform is because they've either lacked the inspiration or the energy or the motivation or the clarity of vision, whatever it is. And I think that uniquely, all of us as leaders, not just the CEO of an organization, all of us as leaders of people and companies have the responsibility to imbue energy into an organization, to know their people intimately enough that they're then comfortable to push them really hard when they need to be pushed and to put your arm around them when they need to be loved and supported a little bit when they may be going through a rough patch. And, you know, this, this has been a guiding philosophy for me. And, you know, truthfully, it's been mixed results, right? I, I'm not sitting here saying it's been all sunshine and unicorns, but um, I, I deeply believe in the, you know, tough on the issue, soft on the people philosophy. And when you're soft on the people, your teammates know that you care deeply for them. And that allows you the latitude to be demanding on the results. Um, but those are two different streams that you do need to push and pull with some regularity, but at the right appropriate times for the right appropriate context. Well, the, the interesting thing about that anecdote, and thank you for sharing it, is that it sounds like Cindy already kind of knew. She knew she was bringing you something that wasn't quite there based on her reaction. you know. And she was like, you're right. Right in the back of my head, I knew it. And we've all been there where we, we're, we're sitting there and we're looking at something and we're saying like, this is the best I have right now, but I feel it like I could do better. Right. So having yeah. a coach that can get you there is that's incredible. Yeah. But equally, right. I've gotten, you know, um, as much, if not more feedback that 
I don't stop demanding for more. Or I am, in, you know, I, I'm constantly saying we need to do more and we can do better. And maybe there isn't enough recognition of the hard work or recognition of the effort or even the quality sometimes that's that's put in front of me. And I, frankly, that is still a development area for me is just, you know, I, I believe that we have such a privilege. And what I think, the, what I aspire to at least is, no matter how hard I push, whenever I push, it is hopefully received in a way that it is the right thing for the individual and for the organization. It is never about my personal or, um, you know, the leadership team's benefit. It is always what's best for the company and how do you be dispassionate about your own ego, your own situation. And therefore, you're making decisions or you're pushing because you're just so passionately committed to advancing the ball for the company and or, or for the organization, charity organization, whatever organizations you're with. And if you do that, then I think people give you a certain degree of tolerance over time because they recognize it comes from the right place. And when you do push incessantly and you are demanding, sometimes incorrigibly, uh, it is. It at least is appreciated and valued because it's done for the right reasons. Yeah, and that that establishes a level of trust, of course, right? That is not mercurial. It is in the best interest. So that's great. And I'm I'm I was smiling here as you were talking because I think for the people at Lippy Taylor that are listening, they're probably relating to some of the things you're saying in terms of. You know, I gave a, a 360 review to one of my direct reports recently, and I said, you know, so I got a lot. I mean, most of the stuff is good. I, you know, like there's a bunch of good stuff here, but let's let's talk about the stuff we can get better at. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, well, could you at least read one or two of the good things? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, but so, here's here's yeah, interesting. Good reminder. There's a superb story here, Paul. That I, you know, you learn. You know, I was taught early, early in my career. You learn, pay attention to every boss you have. Because you learn as much from the good ones as you do from the not so good ones, but you put all those experiences in your backpack, right? Um, so that when you're in a position to lead people and you have that privilege to lead people and, you know, my great privilege to lead an organization, a world leader and lots of people, um, those are the things you draw on. And I, I remember watching one of our previous C CEOs at my previous organization, and he just had this magical gift. The the more successful an individual and or a business, the harder he was. More demanding. Uh, he was way more challenging, asking way harder questions because he didn't want ego or arrogance to set in. Mm -hmm. People that were really struggling, really struggling, or the businesses that were really struggling, he carved out so much personal. And I was the beneficiary of it. I ran businesses that were hugely struggling. And I was expecting, you know, am I going to lose my job? And oh my goodness. Was it? And the generosity that I was shown, we know it's tough. We understand. Tell me what you need. Tell me the situation and then tell me what you need. And for me, that was an equally transformational event because it showed me that leadership is a deeply human thing. Mm -hmm. And I far too often leaders focus on the numbers and the performance, but actually those are output metrics. They are a consequence of everything else you do upstream. And that is the strategy, the investment in time, the investment in your people, the inspiration, the work ethic, you know, the calories burned. And, 
And if you do a lot of those things right more often than not, the, then you'll have financial success. And I think far too often we focus on those output measures rather than, you know, fix root causes, which are much deeper. And I think Paul Pullman, our previous CEO, ha- had had that vision and that calibration talent, which, you know, was hugely inspiring to me and something I, I try to emulate as much as possible in my day job today. That's that's great. So so some of these stories you've been sharing and learnings um, certainly predate, you know, the last 11 months where, you, you know, before this, you spent a, a long career at Unilever. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, two different things and you can take them in whichever order you like. One is going to be leading an organization in Southeast Asia, which is no doubt a completely different experience. Although I'm sure there's some similarities and, and learnings from those two, you know, from from uh, leading, you know, a completely different part of the world. Um, but then the second is you also launched a men's line for a decidedly women's brand, or what was before you launched a men's line, a women-focused brand in Dove. Um, and you got all kinds of accolades and you're, you're in the advertising hall of fame for that, all kinds of good stuff. So which of those do you think we should take first Southeast Asia or launching a women's brand for men? Let's do chronologically, um, because I think the Southeast Asia experience, um, led to my situation here at radio systems, uh, in many respects. So, so that would, might be a nice arc of, of, (laughs) um, so I was working in the UK running, uh, you know, a few of our global laundry um, innovation projects and running a global business uh, in in our fabrics care uh, organization. And I remember getting the call one day saying, hey, you know, we we want you to come run Dove in America. And in our industry, you know, there are there there are a handful of crown jewel kind of roles. And I, I swear to you, Paul, I was like, I don't know what I've done to deserve this honor and privilege, but to go run Dove in the United States is an enormous, enormous um, privilege, not just within our company where it's the crown jewel, but certainly in our industry, particularly on the campaign for real beauty and everything that all the good that that campaign um, brought to that point and still continues to bring today. Um, it was an enormous privilege. And so I thought I died and gone to heaven. I moved to the U.S. I moved to New York and uh, I started in this job. And as I got here, they started the team had done a lot of the work already, you know, and uh, they were telling me about our plans to launch Dove Men Plus Care. And I said, "Okay, walk me through why this makes sense. I think the, the framing of your question is very similar to, I think, a lot of the skepticism. There's an inherent skepticism in the question. Tell me about the logic in it. You know, when you are so famous for something that is broadening the stereotypical depiction of beauty for women and girls and addressing the self-esteem implications of that for women and girls, where do you get off launching a men's brand? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because if anybody is working in uh, any of your listeners are working almost in any industry, right? But certainly in consumer products, um, this was probably the experience uh, more than any other in my entire career that taught me the power of insights and really, really, really understanding consumer drivers and not what they tell you, but what consumers do. I, I can't remember the exact number, but I, it was the majority of men in America at that point in time already had an affinity for Dove Beauty Bar. 
in large part because their wives or the woman in their life, and unfortunately, you know, it is still predominantly women, as I understand it, um, would do the majority of the shopping in the home. And she would inevitably buy the number one brand in the category, which was Dove Bar. And inevitably, you know, Bobby in the shower didn't really care as much about what he was using on his body. He would use whatever Susie had there. And invariably, that was a Dove Bar. And so we knew from studying consumers that this was already a hugely highly penetrated product among men with great satisfaction. The second aspect of it is a, a significant portion of men in America were told by their dermatologists to use Dove because it was the best, highest quality product that cared for their skin. And so suddenly you get a picture of, well, we already have a great deal of penetration. They understand that it's a great product. So there isn't a reticence to use Dove. There's just maybe a reticence to tell your buddies on a Friday night that you use Dove. So we then said, okay, well, then how do we make this a more masculine version of something that is already the superior product in the category and delivering fantastic results for them? And that's when we started looking at how do we shape the bar different to fit a man's hand, which is, you know, physiologically different than men, than women's. It tends to be bigger, et cetera. You know, what, what semiotic cues do men want? They don't want a white curvy bar. They want a more angular masculine bar. They want it to be thicker and weighted in the body washes. They don't want a high lather product. They want more of a gel product, which rinses off, et cetera. So from consumer insights to product insights, we engineered a range of products that addressed what men told us they wanted and would preserve their masculinity but also deliver superior efficacy, something that we have never compromised or at the time we had never compromised on on the brand and never would. You then ma marry that to then, okay, well now how do we talk about this product given that we are famous for talking about women and girls and self-esteem? And we said, well, w w the issue is different for men and boys. So we did the same thing though. We went back and studied how do men feel about how they are depicted in society today? And I remember the number 74% of men in America at that time said they felt falsely or inaccurately depicted in media and advertising. And so we said, okay, this feels like something the Dove brand should and can make an impact about in a positive way. We have the platform, we have the legacy and the credentials having done this in an analogous way for women and girls. And we have the product efficacy that gets us the trust and credibility as as a product and a brand that um, does what we say and then does and seeks a higher purpose in how we serve people and consumers. And so we set out to create the Journeys to Comfort program, which had real life kind of manly men, if you will, talk about some of the deeply, you know, most vulnerable moments, you know, where their own masculinity was challenged or the things that they had overcome in their life to get to this point where they felt comfortable in their own skin, literally and figuratively. And that whole kind of, you know, storyline and, um, um, and campaign led the Dove brand to wild success, massively over-delivering our targets. It's still a fantastically successful business. I'm still deeply loyal to the brand, having no longer been uh, associated with it for some years. Um, but for me, again, it comes back to the power of insights and the power of storytelling and the power of having purpose deep at the heart of your brand and not listening to the naysayers, but actually finding a way to leverage a platform 
to do good in the world while also delivering a fantastic product. That was the recipe on Dove. And uh, it was, as I said, it was just an awesome ride to be a part of. It's, it's, I mean, it's a wonderful story. And thank you for sharing all the sort of the context and the color behind it, um, especially because from the outside, we can all look at it and acknowledge that it was a success. But hearing the why and the how with some of the little choices that went into that, you know, it's usually it's usually the accumulation of many small choices that lead to that kind of big success. Um, so from there, we said we were going chronologically. So from there, you take the really obvious next step of flying out to Thailand. Yeah, well, there are a few steps in between so that, you know, that 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 success, I think, led to a couple of other things. And, you know, I had the great fortune of running all of skincare um, for Unilever and then all of hair care. Uh, for a number of years, which was a phenomenal experience. And then, you know, we had just finished work on our forever home uh, in, you know, the suburbs of New York City. You know, we had invested in a beautiful community there, a wonderful set of friends. And uh, my phone rang and, um, you know, everything I had ever been told about succession planning and what, you know, what was in store for me uh, got upended quite quickly when, they said, listen, you know, we think we think you need to go do something radically different than what's in the plan. And we want you to go run the Thai business. Now, just for context, at that time, you know, we were the, the business was 85 years in the country, number one advertiser in the country, number one employer of choice. It was an institution by a country mile, the number one consumer products company and one of the most reputable organizations in the country. And the country is, you know. 70 million people, right? It's uh, it's bigger than the UK. So it's not a small company, uh, not a small country and not a small company by any means. So it's one of the jewels in the crown of Unilever globally. And I knew that, but never my wildest dream that I think I'd have the privilege of going to do that job. And I've led my, I had led my life up until that point, you know, coming from where I come from, you know, an immigrant you know, the youngest of three immigrant family, you know, the quintessential story, first one to go to college, et cetera. Um, I had promised myself that if I was ever given life-changing opportunities, I would jump at them. I would run through a wall because I knew that they would potentially change the arc of my life. And and this felt like one of those experiences. And I remember telling my wife, who never really wanted to leave, we had just had this out, never, certainly never wanted to go to Asia. It was too far. We're very close to our families at home. And, you know, we were, you know, we had just had a second child. But, you know, as supportive as Carolyn has always been, she said, okay, if you think this is right, we will do this. And it began five of the most glorious, sensational years of our lives, you know, and, um, I got to run this spectacular business that was going through a very difficult patch. The world had changed. And I think we were borrowing on too much of the legacy and the history of the company and not positioning ourselves to be an organization of the future and going through a somewhat cathartic transformation like that is brutal in any circumstance, doing it on the other side of the planet where they don't, you know, they don't speak your language or you don't speak their language, excuse me. Um, and the customs are different and traditions are different was the most all consuming experience of my life. You know, physically I was spent emotionally. I was exhausted, you know, mentally I was challenged beyond belief and it was very, very hard. But I remember 
again, you know, one of the philosophies that, you know, has come to be one of my mantras in life. And that's, you know, and I, again, I picked this up from some of my mentors in life and that's to always do the difficult right things rather than the easy wrongs. And I kept reminding myself that over the arc of time, one way or another, whether I'm, whether I'm successful or not, this has to be seen as one of those transformational life experiences that I'm giving myself and my family. And if, if I fail, it's still been a tremendously good experience. Mm -hmm. And it's the right thing to do to chase those experiences, particularly at that stage in my career. Now, thankfully, we ended up turning the business around. We had a wildly successful last several years. Uh, we were able to recruit a, a fantastic set of leaders to the business. Um, we grew share in every category. And, you know, it, it was just a ridiculously successful situation in the end, both personally and professionally. And that made it all the more rewarding because I had known all throughout how difficult it was to get there. The hard rights um, were indeed the most gratifying wins. And sometimes it's, you know, the, doing the hard thing, putting in the extra work, the growth that comes from that personally is also worth all the pain. Well, and that's, and that's how I've always led my life. So I wasn't going to shirk from that challenge. And I think then, you know, if a couple of years into the experience, I was there for a three-year contract, two years into it, pre-COVID, hey, we want you to pick up some more countries. So I got the enormous privilege of adding six more countries, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, um, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and Brunei. In addition to running the Thai business, I was managing the GMs who ran those businesses. And so you now have some of the richest people in the world, richest consumers and some of the poorest, the most developed economic system in the world to the most rudimentary, you know, and then you throw into that the challenges that COVID placed on all of those countries where healthcare wasn't organized. Uh, it was for a privileged few, but the tens of millions that didn't have access were the most vulnerable people in the world, frankly, to an outbreak of the virus and the role that businesses play to help. You add to that, you know, the military incursions, the military coup that took place in Myanmar on February 1st of 2020, you know, and so all of these things led to, and we were a very, you know, we had 1500 people in Myanmar. And so leading through that as well, those all became ridiculously formative leadership experiences that stretched the balloon, you know, stretched my capacity balloon so much. And I learned so much and it was the most rewarding experience of my personal and professional life um, that I have nothing but fond memories, even though it was brutally hard and challenging. It was all fantastically well, well worth it. So it's great advice. Run towards life changing opportunities. Um, so I have another to kind of like pivot us a different direction here. While I'm on the phone with you, a guy who's in the Advertising Hall of Fame and has just told us you were running the largest advertiser in Thailand. Um, what are your thoughts on this great debate of paid versus earned, right? Advertising versus whatever you call uh, PR plus these days. Um, and in particular, you know, you're in a new role for a big brand with a lot of love. Like, what are your thoughts in terms of how those things work together in the 2020s? Yeah, and look, and I think uh, I'm a big fan of what you do at Lippy Taylor. So let me let me declare that uh, for the record, uh, and be somewhat um, you know uh, patronizing to you. Um, um, we'll take I'll it. Word. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I have long been a fan of earned media. 
And I think if you go back and you look at some of the body of work that I've had the privilege of being a part of, Doveman being notable among them, much of it has been built on the choreography of a portion of paid that you then scale through earned. And I think that balance may shift and the weapons you now deploy may be different, but but that cocktail of interdependency is always to be there and I think will remain so. I think that in a attention-starved consumer world, um, uh, I... I uh, I feel like the onus to be super interesting and to, to serve consumers with things that are way more engaging, that, that bar is extraordinarily high, and it should be. And it puts a greater strain on marketers to be more creative and more ambitious and more daring. So in the end, if you care about creativity, if you care about helping consumers, if you care about you know, doing brilliant, groundbreaking work, then this is the golden age of advertising and media. And I think far too often, it's easy, to be honest, and I understand why, but it's, it's too common that we get overwhelmed by it and our default position becomes, let's do it through purchase scale with watered-down messaging. Mm-hmm. And I have lo- I've never been that guy. You know, because I just, again, put yourself in that situation. You know, I watch a lot of soccer and I watch it with my kids and it gets interrupted regularly with the same five advertisers who have purchased all the limited slots and my kids can recite those ads. And I'm like, that may be effective in, in getting the brand recognition, but does it craft a beautiful relationship with me or my kids? Probably not. It's now more of an annoyance. Yep. And, and so for us at Radio Systems now, what we're trying to do is tell the wonderful story of how we've kept 11 million dogs safe, not, not to mention uh, uh, an incalculable level of mail delivery people and small children next door, et cetera. And you know, how many dogs are no longer running on the street into harm's way? How many dogs are there to comfort their pets, their pet families and the children and the parents who love them. And so we want to get in the storytelling business of what these products do better than any other products and keeping pets safe and healthy. And so that's really the crusade we're on right now is there's a deep purpose at what our products do, but we've done um, date, not a lot, not enough about telling those wonderful stories. And I don't think those stories are purely going to be done Define oh, 15 or 30 second spots in high ticket items, I think in high ticket places, I think they're going to be through the genius and the creativity of finding a way where those stories are best situated, contextual relevance, and the consumer is open to hearing those stories in a much deeper, more meaningful way. And I believe most of those are not bought media, they're earned. Yep. Yep. Well, obviously, we agree with you entirely. And um, it's great to hear that you're you're repeating the playbook of that purpose platform, you know, what led to so much success in your Unilever days now with radio systems. I think um, many of us are going to be watching with interest um, to see if if the Midas touch continues here, Rob. Well, yeah, I mean, again, I think that's very charitable, uh, a characterization. Uh, I don't know about that, but I, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed. This is a 32-year-old company that for decades has been doing ridiculously good work 
in keeping pets safe and healthy. And we have just never told that story. You know, we've let our product quality do the heavy lifting on the back of fantastically talented engineers. And, and, and I think it is now time to tell that story in compelling ways. One, because I think people are more receptive than ever to hearing positive messages and purposeful messages. And also because our story is unique in this space. And I think we have um, so many wonderful things to say. And what a privilege to have that opportunity to do it uh, on the Kurgo brand, on the Sport Dog brand, and certainly on PetSafe and Invisible Fence. Well, thank you very much, Rob. We appreciate you sharing all of your, your insights and your time here today. I think people are going to really enjoy hearing this and um, we'll be watching with interest. It was an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, good luck at Lippy Taylor. Good luck. Good luck with the continued podcast. I'm a big fan. Keep, keep them coming. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Thanks as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.